The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys, and happy Wednesday. Good we morning. are super excited to be with you here today, and we are going to talk about the value of trick training. Trick training has been near and dear to my heart um, pretty much my whole life. I was on the Oprah Winfrey show for trick training. I got to jump rope with the dog while Oprah was holding the rope. I traveled around and did a lot, but Scott broke it down, and he said, you know, there's a lot of value to teaching trick training, so we should tell our listeners all about it. But first, mm. we are going to start with the quirky tip of the day. <laughs> Good job with and the quirky that is, tip there, pumpkin. What's the tip today? The quirky tip of the day is to check out our the Quirky Dog Podcast Instagram because I finally now have done all of our episode of catalogs and it's looking all pretty. And every six episodes, I have a whole little beautiful like find us here, find us there. So check it out. And I uh, like my OCD because I can only up- upload three or six six episodes now at a time. And you'll see what I mean when you go check it out. So the Quirky Dog Podcast on Instagram. Check it out if you haven't seen it. That is my episode catalog. All right. What do you think the value of trick training is here? Well, the reason I thought this was a good idea is because I hadn't considered it uh, within the context of obedience training. I always think of it as trick training. A lot of my clients have done trick training and they're calling me because their dog can't walk down the street. So in that sense, it's not helping them because it's not (laughs) obedience training. But... Where it does come in handy for these people that can show me that their dog does six, seven, eight, ten tricks is that they have engagement. They've learned what motivates their dog. Mm-hmm. They've worked with some mechanics to make the, to get the dog to do these behaviors. Getting a dog to spin requires mechanics. All of these tricks require physical mechanics on the part of the handler, a motivated dog, some engagement. There's a lot of stuff going on there. They're all the same things required for obedience training. So... Coincidentally, the people that have done obedience training that have a very poorly behaved dog, the dog is able to get on board with the obedience training faster because it's just changing that trick into (laughs) walking down the street and not pulling on the leash. And practicing the mechanics is a huge part of that. It's huge. A lot of people act like dog training is, you know, chewing gum and patting your head or what is the saying? Patting your stomach. Patting your stomach, patting your head, rubbing your stomach. Where you do all these things. There is a lot of neuroplasticity involved in dog training. That's the fancy word for it. That's the bottom line. There is a lot of that. I wouldn't say there's a lot, but there is a portion of it. There's a portion of it. Yeah. However, if you're doing some trick training, you're like rehearsing those mechanics. You're practicing that stuff. No, they're not the same mechanics, but you're figuring out how to deal with the leash, how to deal with your food, how to deal with the clicker if you're using one. If your dog isn't uh, wearing a leash, where to do your training. Maybe it's like a bathroom that's, you know, closed off a smaller area to do your training. So you're getting the most bang for your buck, the most productivity, everything else. So those are all kind of things to consider. Like, yeah, it seems stupid, you know, oh, like, why am I going to teach my dog how to play dead or something? But you're interacting with your dog and you're engaging with your dog and you're actually setting yourself up for having your dog be more successful in training any category moving forward, whether mm-hmm. it be pet dog obedience, basic house manners, some sort of sport and everything else. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're working on your relationship with your dog. Oh, and that's like something that, that people have, it's almost non-existent. They have no relationship with their dog. It's like living with a stranger and just feeding that person 
who doesn't speak English, and you're picking up their poop if they don't go out to the bathroom in time. You have to pick up their poop in the middle of the living room. Well, it's and I'm going like to clarify that, is that, yes, there's some people that would say that they have a great relationship with their dog, but the way that relationship is formed or the way that relationship is functioning, let's say, is just by catering to the dog all day, every day. And it seems as though you guys are, you know, engaging and interacting and everything else, but really you're just kind of running around it's trying more one-sided. to yeah, make the dog's life as happy and as low stress and as carefree as it can be. And it may be causing you a lot of stress inadvertently. So we're talking about some productive ways to work together and work on that relationship. Another thing um, that we mentioned. Go ahead. I just wanted to add, you know, it's similar to this to taking care of a three or four year old kid because he's home from school because you can't go to school anymore and you're home from work and just trying to entertain this child all day. It's great. The kid's happy, but it's all you entertaining the kid. And when you stop, now you got a problem. Now you have a frustrated, spoiled kid who wants you to interact with them. That's true. Similar with the dogs. Yeah, that is true. And we were talking about not only is it good with your mechanics and, you know, normally trick training is pretty enjoyable for the dog. It's so funny. Like, you know, a lot of people get down on competition obedience training because it just seems so militant and it's not very fun for the dog and everything else. And agility seems so much more fun than that. Or, you know, Frisbee or something seems so much more fun than that. Well, tricks are fun for everybody, you guys. Like, I cannot tell you how many clients walk in with huge behavioral problems. Like, we're talking like potty training, aggression, anxiety, like the dog is like barely inhabitable in the home, but that dog knows how to sit and wait for dinner. And that dog knows how to shake. That's the first thing everybody teaches their dog is to shake. Like, oh, look, Rover shakes. People love it. It's fun. It's fun for the kids. It's fun for the dog. It's fun for the adults. So that is one main point where like, yeah, trick training, it may not give you any actual behaviors, but you are enjoying it and your dog's enjoying it. And the more that you enjoy training, the more you're going to do training. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. Another thing that came up on that didn't come up on this list but I just thought of now is that the dog is starting to learn about consequences because there's no way you can teach a dog to do a trick without, um, they're not going to do it right in the beginning every time and you're going to start not rewarding stuff that isn't exactly what you want. That's the consequence for the lack of performance completing this trick. But they're learning that there's a there's a relationship here where they have to perform something to get paid to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. They are building frustration tolerance, and that's a good point. So yeah. if you're going to sit there and you're going to teach your dog to spin, and I do a lot of luring with my trick training, and some people are all about just shaping, and that's totally fine. Wherever you stand on the spectrum is fine. Trick training is trick training. All of it's beneficial, in my opinion. Yeah. But if you're teaching the dog to spin, and the dog goes like just a quarter of a rotation rather than goes all the way around, you're not going to just necessarily reward that for effort, especially if the dog's already rotated one whole circle 360 degrees before. So the dog's learning there, okay, if I don't do it right, I'm not going to just get a cookie every time. A lot of times we fall into this trap of like, oh, the dog needs to be reinforced for choices, for effort, for everything else. And then the dog isn't really building frustration tolerance and learning to work through problems when you don't just start Mm -hmm. dispensing cookies right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, I would encourage for effort and I would maybe verbally praise for effort, but the food is going to be, or the ball, if it's a toy, the toy is for good job. You did it. You nailed it. Anything other than that is good job. Let's do it again. I'm not saying, oh, you frigged up, you stupid dog. <laughs> God damn it. Get in the crate. No, it's a little different. <laughs> that we ruins it, the trick. We keep it light with trick training. Um, another really good one. Ideally, you keep it light with all training. That is true. Another good one that I really like and something that I've really always tried to hit home in my tricks classes and tricks classes have been near and dear to me. I've taught them in Minnesota, in Colorado, in Illinois, in Massachusetts. I've taught them a lot of different places. I've not my forte. Not my forte. <laughs> it's not his favorite thing, but it is one something that I enjoy. And my online tricks course, I actually put a link in this description if you guys are interested in checking that out. But 
the thing about the way I approach tricks is they're confidence building. And it's so true. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a dog when, like, I want to teach a dog to go through an owner's legs or weave through the legs, like either go through or weave through or figure eight, whatever, something about that. And there's an environmental sensitivity that dogs like, oh crap, like I can't go through there. That's scary. Like I can't get through my owner's legs. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be confident enough for that. So we work through that and that doesn't look like, okay, put the dog on a leash and bring the dog through the owner's legs. But maybe then we are rewarding approximations like feed for taking a treat out from in between your legs and then toss a cookie away. We're building confidence and whether it's puppies or a fearful adult dog or even a senior, there's a lot of benefits to the body and body awareness and everything as it relates to seniors that we'll get to later. But there is a very strong way, if you see a dog that lacks confidence or lacks, maybe some people call it socialization, that tricks kind of bring them out of their shell, that brings them up. You can go into a new environment where a dog may be a little bit concerned about something and you do a few tricks and all of a sudden the dog's happier and feeling better about its life while it's sitting in this place that maybe it would have been fearful with had you not had tricks. So be mindful of that and consider that if you have a dog that's a little bit on the shy side. Yeah. And I would say as far as confidence building goes, I'm thinking about the handler. Yeah. <laughs> the dogs are pretty easy. Most dogs are not really fearful. And, and you got treats and like, yeah, what do you want to do? You know, I'll do it. <laughs> the problem I see with a lot of people when I get to their home, they are very insecure about their own handling and their own confidence with this dog. And quite often it's because they've had some negative experiences that have really shaken them. But the mechanics are tricky and they're really difficult. And one thing, and this is after you know, a solid 15 years of training pet dogs full time. Uh, Just the past couple of years, I've started saying, leave the dog in the house, bring the leash out. I'm the dog today. And I can't believe what a breakthrough I had in helping people learn how to handle their dog by me being the dog and helping them get through those mechanics, spending 15 minutes with me. Okay, get the dog out here. Let's try it with the dog. And it just goes so much smoother because they screw it up with me over and over and over, and they don't screw it up with the dog. So the dog isn't getting all of this like confusing, what the hell are we doing And why here? do you think they're more successful with that? Uh, because I am, they can't control the dog. The dog is untrained. So the dog is doing all kinds of behaviors that they don't know how to counter. And I also with think me, the dogs I'm fluster tell them, I'm a lot tell of those them what owners. I would say that the dogs fluster them, whether they Well, they even, just don't know what to do. They don't, but even if they practice the mechanics 10 times without the dog, when the dog first comes, you're adding another component to that. So practicing without your dog is just allowing you to focus on this one little small part of it. Whether your dog knows what to do or not, it adds a whole other component. And I ran into that all the time with DISC. That was a huge thing with Frisbee. We used to call it Frisbee back in the day, and now we call it DISC. I don't even know why it changed, but whatever. So I have we used to been call it playing... hubcap when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> this could be another episode. But when I was playing frisbee when I was little, I started when I was seven years old. Like it was ridiculous. And I cannot tell you how many times I would go out and I would throw the freaking frisbee without my dog anywhere near me. Like target practice, go through my routine, freestyle. That's a great way to do disc management. Like these are the kind of mechanics that we're talking about that really affect your training in general. So. I think so far you guys should just start training tricks the rest of the day I'm based on to feel the that information we've given you. But after the break, we're going to get even more into some other finesse that you can use as the dogs get older as it relates to your trick training. What makes Coranda Beds chew-proof? Only Coranda Beds have a patented design which secures the fabric inside the frame, making it totally inaccessible to jaws and paws. Your dog can't chew the fabric because we've hidden the edges inside the rails. Dogs love Coranda Beds. See why? 
Coranda beds come in a variety of custom sizes. You can even add a fleece pad on top for extra coziness. And these beds can be used both indoors and outdoors. But best of all, our beds are easy to clean. Just wipe them off or hose them down. Visit dogbed.us slash thequirkydog for more details. All right, we are back and we are going to do the quirky question of the day. And the quirky question of the day is a funny one because um, I went to an appointment with Scott the other day and the client had asked Scott this question the week before when I wasn't there. And then he wanted to kind of use me as bait, like maybe Jess make will sure, have another answer. Make yeah. sure I was giving some sound <laughs> advice there. <laughs> but it's or, funny when the clients do this. And then I would say about 95% of the time we give the exact same answer. So they back off. But his question was, uh, what should I do? I'm going to be going to the vet with my dog. He uh, had a lot of control issues with his dog. What should I do with my dog going to the vet? Should I take the equipment off that I've been using? He's using a pinch collar and an e-collar. No, no e-collar. No, just a pinch just collar. A pinch collar. And uh, I said, no, I said, absolutely not. Like that's what the dog's trained on. The dog goes in. If the vet respects, the vet should respect whatever you do. This is your own dog. So don't worry about the fallout of whatever you're doing with your dog, whether it be a gentle leader or a pinch collar or something else, having a vet see that or a groomer see that or something else. If that's how you're training your dog, you set your dog up for success and you make sure that your dog has the tools on to be able to be well-behaved and keep all the vet techs and all the groomers and everything safe. So we both answered the same way and he I, learned his lesson. I would add to that that um, if a vet is giving you a hard time about the tools and the methodology that you're using to train your dog, I would find another vet personally. That is true. That I would isn't find really, another vet because yeah. they're not dog trainers. They're not trained in animal behavior. You know, they're trained with the systems of the dogs, you know, the to help them physically. And as far as the... Um, the emotional components, I mean, they're, they're experimenting with these psychiatric drugs that we use on humans. Um, trying our, they're trying their best. The vets are trying their best to help people with behavioral issues. But you need to see a, a dog trainer. And if you don't like your dog trainer, find another dog trainer. You don't Just like find your another vet? one. Doesn't mean the find dog trainer. Yeah. If you don't like it, if people don't like me, find someone else, but don't not train your dog. It's 2021. If you didn't like quarantining with your family in 2020, find a new family. Just start mm. fresh. Get get everything so you like it, so Ooh, you're feeling good. Quite an idea. Oh, you had fun quarantining with me. Okay. I'm not talking about you. We're getting back to trick training. So um, another thing, obviously tricks. I mean, there was a huge trick segment when we did entertainment, fairs, and theme parks. Tricks are entertaining. Tricks are great. Yeah. Tricks are exciting to watch. Tricks are great if you have a dog who's qualified to do therapy work with a TDI. If you're going to go into nursing homes, yes, it's so nice to be able to have your dog sit there and hang out and, you know, provide some sort of companionship to these people. But if your dog can cover its eyes in the meantime and do something cute and gimmicky, even more power to them. I've had clients, we have friends, they go to these facilities with their dogs regularly, monthly, uh, bi-weekly if they can. It all depends, but they're bringing their dogs there and they're almost putting on some sort of show for all of these people. Obviously, it's not happening with COVID and we can't get into any place, but the fact that they're trying to use their tricks to bring joy to others, more power to you and tricks are entertaining. You, any, nobody can argue that. Did you men mention body awareness yet? No, let's get into that. Yeah, because that's talk an interesting about, thing. Yeah. Now, here's the thing like with me and body awareness that I do a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm not the best teacher, I think. I'm a good dog trainer, and I have pretty good success with people, but I don't have a teaching background. And I have found that dog trainers that come from a teaching background are, and they're good dog trainers are far superior in the sense that they're putting together you know, so much back, stuff on the back end to provide to the client. But as far as body awareness goes, for me, 
from the obedience side, the heel position is the dog is sitting at your left, his shoulders in alignment with your left knee, and he's just sitting in that stationary heel position. It's also a motion exercise, but the dog needs to know how to get into that heel position. And what a lot of people do in the obedience is they put themselves next to the dog. And it's not teaching the dog to come into the heel. They're just trying to make it look right. So they stand next to the dog to make it all look right. But body awareness is where, with my dog, and this gets into kind of trick training in a sense as it relates to the heel position, where I'll sidestep, say heel, the dog will hop over next to me into the heel position because he has to be aware of his body. He's moving laterally. And his back end has to be tucked in so that he's sitting square next to me. He can't turn and come to me, and then be looking perpendicular to me, he has to come in sideways. So he has to be aware of his body, get that back end in. As an example, I'll let you take off with the trick training and the behavioral stuff. No, I think that works well for body awareness. And it's important to think about the benefits of body awareness and coordination and proprioception and everything else as it ties in with trick training. But could you bring up maybe a couple of tricks that would I'm make the to, dog I'm going to. I'm going to even some? talk about seniors and all of that. Great. I'm going to go hog wild. This is an exciting podcast. So one uh, thing podcast. that I really like, and there's a lot of controversy about dogs sitting pretty right now. We've gotten to that point. And really? I understand there's controversy about dogs doing things at any point, but some fitness people have said that it's concerning. I'm so, so glad I'm off Facebook. I do, <laughs> I do agree that um, a dog needs to have a flat back, that that should be important for a dog when it's sitting pretty. You don't want an arched back. And chondrodystrophic dogs, dogs with long backs, it can be harder to you know achieve the sit pretty position and everything else. So there are things that you want to consider. However, sitting pretty with uh, good core strength and a flat back is good for balance. It's good for coordination. Teaching a dog to back up is huge for proprioception. And when you're going to teach a dog to back up, I'd rather have the dog stepping backward than hopping backward. There's a big difference in that. So those are two things that are super good. Having the dog be able to spin or figure eight is really good for flexibility. It's turning in a tight circle. It's weaving around your legs tightly. It's having the dog be very flexible. And I want to take these things and relate them to older dogs and how it's important for that. So neurologically, a lot of times you're going to see like some dogs with some weaker back ends or something else. It's not even that they have degenerative myelopathy, just systems get weaker, muscles get weaker, things change over time. So you're going to see a deterioration sometimes in the dog's back end. You'll see that it'll be harder for dogs to get on couches as they get older, get on beds, everything else. Mm. Go back to some of this trick training, you guys. I cannot tell you how valuable this has been for my older dogs if they have gotten older. So waving, it's fun little games back and forth, stretching the front end, backing up, teaching them when they're young so they remember when they're old, oh, this is how I back up. When they start getting things firing in different parts of their body, it's going to lend itself to having more longevity and their bodies being able to last longer and everything else. And a really important example that I'd like to bring up is Sarge and how we use Mm. that with his appetite. Yeah. I also want to bring up Bam too, but go ahead with Sarge. Okay. We just want to talk about our old dogs. I want to talk about the my whole, old dogs. The whole podcast. Where is Bam? Bring her up. You got the keys? <laughs> I, I got my little Bam's medicine bag with her in there. Um, so with Sarge, this was really interesting. So he, we think that he probably had an aortic tumor or something. And um, I treated that by- He got an ultrasound. So yeah. we knew he had a lump in there. Yeah. But years ago, and then when things went haywire, we're not sure what happened. But we assume based on all the prognoses that he had an aortic tumor. Well, he was having a lot of trouble um, moving around and figuring out how to deal with his body. So the coordination was good. And we actually used a little CBD with THC mixed in, which is controversial, but it worked great for us. And um, we also used for his appetite because his appetite would be so-so, which is why I brought up that aortic tumor because sometimes dogs with some sort of cancer can have 
lesser appetites. I would use the tricks as a conditioned response to eat. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. So him and I were very attached. Scott would feed him breakfast so he wouldn't get all worried about mom. And normally Scott would give him his bowl and he would eat and it was fine. Then I would take him at night and I would do some tricks. And he was just used to doing this, eating food, doing this, eating food, because it was a conditioned response for 12 to 13 years of his life. So that's a really important thing to consider, you guys, is making tricks a conditioned response is a good way to maybe get dogs to eat when they have a lower appetite for something physically going on with them or something else. What yeah. about our BAM? Well, with Sarge, I will say that in the end, um, and I t- I'm talking about the last month, he really did not have a lot of appetite. You could put a bowl of food in front of him and he might pick at it, but he might just walk away from it. He just was done with life. And, and you know, of course, you don't want to let your dog go. So as long as he could get up and go out and go potty. It wasn't then, that morose, but okay. <laughs> the last few weeks were getting tough. Okay. But anyway, um, so when he wasn't eating at all out of his bowl, Jess could have him spin and he would eat. He would just start eating. And, that, and the other thing was using jealousy too, getting some other dogs doing some tricks and eating and he'd be right in the middle of it. And then he's like, well, where's mine? I want to do it too. Even though he didn't feel like eating, mentally he's like, oh, I got to get a part of this. What was your Bam story? Uh, with Bam, she started having the trouble. She used to love to jump up on the couch with me. Uh, especially if another dog was with me, she'd get jealous. She'd jump up on my chest and tell the other dog, fuck off, get out of here. This is my, this is my human. And then one day she jumped and hit the edge of the couch and fell back. She could not make it all the way up there, you know? Uh, and then she got nervous. She got nervous about jumping, and we started doing the. Um, it wasn't directly because of that, but we took a five-gallon bucket with a cover on it, and she used to jump up on Jess's shoes when Jess was laying on her back, and do a foot stall and a sit pretty on top of Jess's shoes when Jess was lying on her back for entertainment. So we put mounted a pair of shoes on top of a five-gallon bucket and started doing a session in the evening, maybe two, three times a week of her jumping up onto those shoes. That's a really good point. It helped a lot of different things. Yeah, it's a really good point is modifying tricks. And she couldn't get there anymore. Yeah, and and making them feel like they can still do things. And tying that in with Bam, Bam is funny. Um, When I was doing entertainment, which again, canine entertainment, it always makes me sound like a stripper. I was doing canine entertainment, fairs and theme parks in between college, traveling around with a lot of production companies. Bam was not a toy dog. Bam liked food. So Bam wasn't going to be a Frisbee dog. She wasn't going to be a flyball dog. Or she terrier. could have been, but with a ton of work. She just she was not very motivated by toys. So tricks were great for her because I could bring out her food drive. And through trick training, you guys, not only can you start to work on drive building, as in mental drive building, like, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to go? Like, I all the time, like, hold my dogs. I grab their collar. I can throw them back. I can run away. I can ask them to spin. I can run away. I can build a lot of drive into different activities that I'm doing. And that can be both physical physically and mentally. But for a dog that is not super motivated by toys, like if you want to have a disc dog or something and your dog isn't into disc, doing tricks is showing you where their motivation lies. So like with Bam, I can tell you with great certainty, I lost a lot of the ends of my fingers there. Her highest value thing was probably cooked steak. So I was able to evaluate (laughs) Bammer's different values and motivators through my trick training. And that's important to bring to other parts of your training. So yeah. nice to talk about the old dogs. We should mention them. Yeah. <laughs> they should have their old segment. Their old <clears throat> segment. So, All right. Do you have anything else to say about trick training? Well, the bottom line is it's fun. People are much more receptive to trick training than obedience training. People associate trick training with fun, freedom, happiness, and they associate obedience training typically with control, a necessary evil. Oh, shit. My dog bit the neighbor. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I'm dealing with. Yeah. But anybody that has done trick training with a puppy... Let's say you did two or three trick, maybe, yeah, say three trick classes in the first year of that dog's life, and then you just kind of got away from it. But now you're getting some behavior you don't like. If you start doing some obedience training, 
all that trick training foundation will work with you right away. Right yeah, you so start. there's no negative. It's there's a win -win. no negative. It's a win-win. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you need anything from us, studio at thequirkydog.com, and we will see you then. Keep it quirky. Peace. Pig handler. <laughs>